0: Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Michael Ware. Michael's the founder of Public Square Strategies and a leading expert and strategist at the intersection of faith, politics, and American public life. As one of President Obama's ambassadors to America's believers. Michael directed faith outreach for President Obama's historic 2012 re-election campaign. Michael was also one of the youngest White House staffers in modern American history. He served in the White House faith-based initiative during President Obama's first term, where he led evangelical outreach and helped manage the White House engagement on religious and value issues, including adoption and anti-trafficking efforts. He's the author of Reclaiming Hope, and he's got a great new podcast called Church Politics. He's a really interesting guy, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I do. I give you Michael Ware. Michael, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, it's good to be here.
0: You worked for Barack Obama. You've got a great book that's new about called Reclaiming Hope. Yeah. You, there's so much I could talk with you about, but I want to note that you're a four on the Enneagram. Yeah, yeah, I am. And as a fellow four on the Enneagram, I mean, why wouldn't we just start talking about how significant we are <laughs>
1: <laughs> and special. That's always a good place to start. <laughs> so
0: it, it's interesting as a four though, do you think that uh, for people who don't know the Enneagram, right? It's basically a nine type system where there, there's kind of three root motivations in people like either anger, uh, emotion or, or fear. Yeah. <laughs> and All within right. the three types, like, you know, the, the there's, there's you either each type, either, either uh, internalizes, suppresses, or externalizes, you know, so force would be where the feeling type emotions, like we internalize the romantic, right?
1: Yeah. And I definitely resonate more, you know, depending on, you know, who's writing the book, some call it the individualist. I definitely resonate more with, with, uh, with the romantic label. Uh, I I'm, I'm, I'm not so much in um, the individualist label just doesn't resonate with me. You, you know, the the most interesting and I think difficult thing for fours is, is I pushed back on the idea that I was a four for a while. I thought, I thought that I was a six. And honestly, there's still a small part of me that's like, because I haven't done like a full session yet. Like what, uh, or like I haven't, um, I, I still, there, I have a buddy, in Nebraska, who does retreats, and I've been thinking about doing one of those. But the most difficult thing is, you know, if you're a four and you push back and feel like, you know, well, oh, I, I don't feel like a four. People say, "Oh, that's the most four thing." That's you can what say. the four says, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Oh, like, I'm the special one. I'm the yeah, you know the test. Bit, I broke the test. Yeah, this is a vicious circle, man.
0: <laughs> totally. I remember when I figured out I was a four. I like threw the book out the window. I was like, I don't want to be this type. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, do you think that part of the romantic in you drew you to want to work for someone like Barack Obama, like someone yeah. that? I mean, that's, it, it, it,
1: it, it's undeniable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The, the, he he is a f- figure that I think in American politics caused was a unique uh, cipher for people, or 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 a container into which they poured a lot of hopes.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I I think I think that's true. And there was, um, you know, and his campaign was so full of this you know, it was a very nostalgic campaign, which is interesting because he was so much of it about on one side was about sort of turning the page and, you know, the first sort of post baby boomer candidate. And so, so much of it was about the future, but there were also these intense elements of nostalgia, whether it was hearkening back to a uh, uh, JFK and Camelot, uh, which they did pretty, pretty often or hearkening back to, um, hearkening back to the civil rights movement, which they did very often. Uh, the president gave a speech uh, 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 in, invoking the Joshua generation, which obviously uh, is, uh, pulls on biblical themes, but also pulls on um, uh, uh, themes from civil rights era. And then even pulling on, uh, at, at times quite explicitly, the West Wing, <laughs> sort of, and sort of the 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 space in our moral imagination that the West Wing took up, and so it, it was definitely it was an interesting campaign. We're we're talking about two thousand eight in particular, uh, an, an interesting campaign that combined both sort of uh, progress and an idea of moving forward with also heavy heavy themes of nostalgia,
0: and I feel like. That campaign borrowed as much from Santos as it did from Bartlett if you're a West wing fan I mean because when you go back and watch the the Santos campaign with Jimmy Smith and look at the Obama 2008
1: campaign it's eerie <laughs> well so, so what's interesting is uh I believe that Aaron Shorkin has said that he actually based Santos on Obama uh, that he saw this young. Now, maybe maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm, uh, I'm almost certain that that, that Shorkin has gone on the record saying that. So, so it's, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing, but oh, absolutely. And and again, you know, I think it was, it was, it was quite, you know, uh, those who were doing advanced, those who were writing speeches, I I think it was a, I think it was a pretty, um, it wasn't sort of something in the subconscious. I think it was, it was something that was, that you know was deliberately you know appealed to.
0: You talk about in reclaiming hope meeting Obama for the first time, and you were like going to this uh, Democratic convention. Yeah, uh, uh, this was before he would elected his can- he had announced his candidacy, and you kind of walk up to you were you were you got there on the wrong day.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I show up at this hotel. Uh, I-, I just had the wrong date, and so I was supposed to be leading. <laughs> some folks to this convention and um, I get there and it's empty, but it was my, my first political convention. So I kind of just expected I'd walk into a room, open up a door, maybe, you know, it would be there. But after walking around this huge hotel for a while, ask the receptionist and she goes, Oh honey, that's not for another couple of days. And so I leave feeling embarrassed and dejected. Uh, and as I'm walking through the lobby, Barack Obama enters uh, the doors coming into the hotel uh for for meetings a day or two before the convention and so uh he basically walked up to me um uh and it, like you said it was before he had announced he was running for president so there was no secret service detail um he was pretty well known but there wasn't like a a bunch of folks waiting to see him so he basically walked up to me and I had followed his career for for uh, quite a few years already and uh and I told him I wanted to work for him and and 10 months later I was in Iowa
0: you said his assistant, Reggie Love, you had to pester him a
1: little bit, right? You you, you followed it. You did a lot of following up. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I really emphasize that for, for young people who are reading the book, I think sometimes they get, um, and I was tempted to sort of, um, be like, um, oh, they're, they're not responding. They must not, you know, uh, it just must be a closed door or this and that. Well, the truth of the matter is, um, a, they were in the process of getting staffed up, and and, and B, when you're on a campaign, it's just very busy. There's no time off, and campaigns are interesting because uh, there's a finite amount of time before the one real test that you have. And so uh, the pressure is always on, and the pressure is always on uh, – again, because of the finite time and because there are very few ways to measure your success until election day. And so there's no, there's no sort of let up in the pressure. There's no sort of, oh, we're doing well. We can sort of rest on our laurels. And so um, what my, my advice to, to folks looking to get in politics or really any sort of career path is um, to try and find the line between uh, being persistent and going after what you want. And, and obviously, you know, trying not to step on the other side of that line, which is being annoying or pestering folks. But yeah, so I, I I dropped, uh, Reggie and a couple other folks I got connected to on the campaign, you know, an email every couple of weeks or so, um, uh, sometimes just reminding them I was I was alive and and you know ready to uh, uh, you know a- available to be helpful if if they needed me and then sometimes I'd send you know multi paragraph emails that were like uh, here are a couple things I think you should be doing better or, here, here are a couple things I, I wouldn't have done uh, and. Uh, you know, just staying on the radar was was an important thing, so that at the time when they did need me, um, or or they needed someone, um, I, I was I was sort of on the um, I was on the radar. What
0: were the nature of those early critiques? How old were you at this point, by the way? I was very young. I was so so eighteen or nineteen. So eighteen year old Michael Ware is saying, "Look, Obama campaign. Here's where I think you got to step it up. Like, what what, were, what was the content
1: of those emails? <laughs> yeah. Well, so um, so." They were—so our last presidential election, uh, we had—the Democratic nominee had a candidate who uh, said after the election, his campaign manager said after the election that um, they—a primary reason for John Kerry's loss was his inability um, to to tell a coherent, compelling story about how his faith connected to his politics. And so he ran into all kinds of problems, especially in the last— uh, last sort of, um, in the, in the last sprint to the election about his faith, he got denied communion, uh, I think by a, a bishop in Kansas city, um, his debate answers about his faith and social issues just uh, were not coherent. It's not that he gave, uh, bad answers simply on policy grounds. It was that it, it, it didn't ring true to people. Uh, and so, uh, Barack Obama was kind of, as I write about in the book, um, kind of offered uh, a new path forward. And so um, th- there were a lot of opportunities uh, throughout the campaign uh, before I started working on it to, to speak into what they were doing because because um, he was so in, uh, in, intently reaching out to people of faith and his, his rhetoric was so resonant with religious themes. So I, I wouldn't like get into uh, sort of uh, specifics, but I mean, if, p- if people, People think about the 2008 campaign and the kinds of uh, issues that came up. I mean, you know, Reverend Wright was a major theme <laughs> in, in the campaign. Uh, uh, the president gave a speech in 2007 to uh, his denomination's conference called "A Politics of Conscience." Um, uh, that was that was. Um, uh, sort of a speech about his view of faith in public life, and so you know when those types of things would come up, I'd, I'd, I'd send some opinions. But but again, it was important. Uh, um, uh, you, you know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't knocking knocking doors down. I'm just uh, uh just making you're sure they, making sure they knew I was around. Yeah, you're a plucky guy. Just making it yeah. right. <laughs>
0: No, you were in college at the time when you're sending these emails right yeah where was that
1: where'd you go to Uh, george washington university uh, in dc so
0: you and you just you drop out to go work on the campaign i did yeah and then you stay then you just went right from the campaign to the white house right at 20 that's right yeah so are you a successful now like 28 year old college dropout
1: no, so I, I got my degree. So so I, 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 I got That bums I got my, me out. That bums me out. Yeah, I kinda I, wanted, I kinda wanted you to not have finished. Well, so you know, David Pluff, who was the president's campaign manager in two thousand eight, he, he uh didn't graduate from college. I he he has a degree now. I believe he went back, but um, but there were a number of people associated with the campaign that that had that story, including the guy, you know, the guy running it in in David. But but yeah, I, I went back to school. You know, I, I had too many loans uh, piled up already to not to not go back and at least. Did you do that while you were at the White House? <laughs> I, I haven't written this. I don't think I put this in the book, but yeah my my last my, my first year in the White House I was taking night classes at g w so i'd like eight thirty to eleven two days a week. it was awful, I don't recommend it, but it was just the way it sort of t- turned out but yeah. so well you were
0: like Charlie young in the west wing, you're like you know <laughs> so you're there like you know like Charlie's what going to night school and doing stuff, kind of yeah yeah, yeah yeah,
1: working for the president yeah yeah it w- it was um. Yeah, and it would just be weird, right? Because I'd I'd leave and you know come to a, a class. Uh, I, I actually took a religion and politics class, you know, while I was you know while I was working at the. White Are House you like, then, hey, I could teach this? <laughs> Excuse me, <laughs> professor, let me take over for you here. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was just an interesting experience. Well, you know, one thing it did help me do was it helped me um, uh, stay grounded in the sense that the White House can be a very isolating place ideologically just because you're, you're, you're on a team, you have a job to serve the country, but you're, you're, but you're advancing an agenda. And if you're not intentional about seeking out other opinions, um, then, then, then you could become quite insulated. Um, now I had many opportunities to, uh, to hear other opinions, um, uh, because of, uh, the types of folks I, I worked with and who we were doing outreach to, but um, you know, be, being in a class with a bunch of opinionated, you know, pretty pretty diverse uh, diverse people was was helpful in my first year.
0: Well, just okay. When does the honeymoon period end? Working at the White House. When
1: do you walk in and it's just another office? I mean, is there is there a time or is it yeah? So, of, so it was interesting. So we didn't really. I'm not sure if I'd call it a honeymoon period because because we didn't have one, right? So we we came in um uh you know in, in late January, early February and uh we were on the brink of the great uh, of the next great depression. And so um there there was no sort of settling in period. We we, we kind of had to hit the ground running. Now, I, but so I I'm not sure that there was a honeymoon period. Um there is never a point in my experience working at the white house where you forget you're working at the white house. Um, there's just too much history there. There's, um, uh, you don't have a whole lot of time to like, you know, just sort of, you know, uh, literally smell the roses in the rose garden. But, um, you, you never think it's just another place to another place to work. You're, 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 you know, you're walking around in a living museum. How many times did you go in the oval? Dozens and yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty, pretty regularly.
0: What was the first time like when you walk in the oval are you you're like holy shit this is the oval
1: office yes <laughs> so so this is uh this is how I open up uh reclaiming hope um you know it was a crazy day so my first it was my first day at the white house um officially um the president starts the day at the washington hilton where I'd met him a year and a half two years earlier um uh actually yeah it was two years earlier um uh for the national prayer breakfast. Uh, and so he gives a speech of national prayer breakfast at the Washington Hilton and then went to the white house to sign an executive order, sort of reestablishing the faith based office where I'd work. And he did that in the oval. And so, you know, uh, we arrived, I'm, I'm, Tired, but also hopped up on adrenaline just because it was my. Uh, it, we it was an early start, but I had way too much caffeine pumping through my my veins, so I was you know sort of on the brink there. And walking to the White House, and um, it had become clear. I, I haven't. I, I write this in the book, but I haven't said it in in an interview yet. Um, it it was really clear early on uh, how how quickly the president became comfortable and became aware of the power of the location of the Oval Office. And what I mean by that is, so you walk in the West Wing lobby, you go down the hallway towards, you pass the Roosevelt Room, uh, and if you've never been in the West Wing before, and I had, but only a couple times, uh, and I didn't remember it too much, um, you you turn the corner from the Roosevelt Room, and the Oval Office is right there. Uh, So the president is standing in the doorway, and, like, with light emanating from off the snow outside the Oval Office through the window. So the Oval Office is, like, you know, uh, emanating golden light. And, he, <laughs> you know, he, he's standing right there when you're not expecting him. And, you know, he says – so so just for more context, so he was uh, – I, I was with religious leaders who were going to be in the Oval for the executive order signing. So, so he says hello to all the religious leaders. And then in the book I talk about the fact, you know, I, I'm trying to stay – uh, out of the way uh, uh, during the signing, the religious leaders were sort of surrounding him. And I kind of find myself wedged somehow in between uh, 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 a sort of uh, a lamp and an end table that I was certain had been whittled by Thomas Jefferson himself. Because why <laughs> else? And I'm just like, I better not knock over anything or i was afraid of breaking the white house you know on my first day and so that was it, it was um it, it was a it was amazing and then when the door closes in the oval office the room just gets bigger it, it is it is uh, architecturally it is one of the most imposing rooms you know that i've, I've ever been in it's just an incredible feat of architecture
0: <laughs> and it's designed to let you know who's the, who the president is oh yeah like, you, 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 for yeah. sure yeah. yeah yeah
1: how well did you get to know him the president? I mean, we weren't, um, and I, I, I'm really clear about this in in the book, um, and, and I think it's important because y- you just have a lot of people uh, who, who <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> it seems like the president was the best man at their wedding, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so we were not, uh, we were not kicking back drinks after work. We were not um i got to know him professionally so i got i got to um i have prayed with him in private and um and in more public settings i've heard him talk about his faith in private and in public um we we've had meetings uh uh together um uh, but but you know we weren't sending each other well, I mean, he sends everybody a Christmas card, so I got a Christmas card from him. But but we weren't, you know, we weren't, te- we were not text buddies. Uh, but but <laughs> but I, but I got to know him. Here's what I could tell you about him. First, he um, he has an amazing ability to absorb material, um, and so I would, you know, uh, I, I'd write a, a memo and then be in a meeting with him, and he'd know the briefing materials I wrote better than I did. <laughs> uh, just, so just this amazing, um, he just had a very sticky sort of intellect. Um, uh, he has a, he, he has a, a, a dry and cutting wit. So uh, he'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll, he, he likes sort of, um, uh, cutting humor. And so he'll, he'll, uh, he's, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of, kind of loose in that way. Um, and then he he just has it and you you could pick this up just reading uh dreams from my father or a little bit in audacity of hope uh, you know part of his conception of himself is um and actually this is a david remnick this is david remnick's memoir of him uh david remnick uh, david remnick wrote a memoir uh called the bridge and that's really how the president i think views his life history, not just his political history is sort of being able to bridge these distinct identities and viewpoints into some kind of synthesis. And, and that's, that sort of core to who he, he is. He's always trying to find points of points of connection between people and ideas.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've never felt prouder of votes that I cast in, in 2008 and 2012 which for for McCain and Romney? No, just kidding. No, no I mean, no, I vote, I mean I, you know, you know, I I voting for President Obama uh, twice were two of the best memories I've had in voting booths. I mean, they really um it was. And it's interesting. I was interview I was interviewing a guy this week, Tom Nichols, who's a yeah wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. What a great guy! You know, he's a five time Jeopardy winner.
1: I, I didn't know that about Tom. <laughs> I, no.
0: man, I learned so much about Jeopardy too, not just Russians <laughs> and National, but, but you know, he said one thing too that that in 2008 that you'd never see this now. He said, John McCain and Barack Obama both pointed to these factories in places like Pittsburgh and said, they're gone and they're not coming back. Now, they had different political economic visions of what to do. But he said, they didn't tell you, like, oh, we're going to get the Chinese and the Mexicans or we're going to retrain everybody. And it's going to be perfect. Like, they 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 treated the voters, both McCain yeah. and President Obama, like they were adults who could handle hard information. Yeah. I just feel like now we've come a long way where now you just don't do that. I mean, fake news. I mean, it's just, I mean, right. it, 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 it's, it's, it's a fascinating yeah. thing. Yeah. I ask you, what, what was your biggest, you you, you drop a clue about this in the book, but like, what, what was your biggest disappointment in the president? When was the day you were like, gosh, this is not the guy I thought, uh, or wh- I wish this did not go on this way.
1: Or this Yeah. Little, this, I, I think, I think that's the, that's the way I'd, I'd frame it sort of, um, well well let me just pick up off my last comment which is you know core to the president's vision of himself and I I think and certainly how he's told his story at, is sort of this strong competence in e pluribus unum sort of out of many one and this idea that we're a country that can can bridge divides and that's when America works best and um to some extent the way that uh the HHS contraception mandate was handled um I, I think fell short of that commitment i don't think that the administration went as far as they could have or as far as the courts have now forced uh, forced them to go in finding common ground and finding a, a a a more deferential way to move forward and achieve their policy goals there um and then also there was there was a controversy around the uh, the inauguration the the inaugural um Uh, the second one in 2013, um, around uh, a pastor that the president had invited to come speak, who um, got some criticism for some comments he had made a couple decades ago around uh, some sensitive issues. And um, it was very similar to and I have an entire chapter about this, um, and so if folks want to sort of get the get the blow by blow and really understand this, uh, um, uh, th- this is really the one of the climactic chapters of of the book. But
0: are you talking about the ev- the evolution of the president chapter? No, I'm talking
1: about the or, or the, 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 the um, chapter ten on the the two inaugurations. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 And so you, you know. Um, in 2009, we had a similar thing. You know, Rick Warren um, was, was similarly critiqued for his views on some issues. And and the president at that time, or I guess the president-elect said, you know, we live in a big, diverse country. This inauguration is for all people. And, um, you know, there are millions of Americans resonate with with Rick's views. And even though I disagree with him on some issues, I agree with him on others like fighting poverty and, and, uh, fighting AIDS around the world. Um, and so there's room for him too. And in, in 2013, a different approach was taken, um, that, that I didn't reflect that sort of e pluribus unum ethic that was so, uh, core to, um, I think the president's vision of himself uh, uh, not to mention um, sort of the principles that he laid out at other moments during his political life. And so uh, that, that, that was, um, that was a disappointing moment, moment to me.
0: You know, I remember in the 2008 campaign when Rick Warren had that forum where he had each candidate yeah. Yeah. and I remember the, one of the questions said, what do we do with evil? Right. Do we confront it? Do we, you know, do we assuage it? Do we whatever? Like, and McKenzie's like, we def- we destroy you, and I tell President Obama's, then Kennedy Obama's, answer was so impressive. It was, it was sort of a page out of Reinhold Niebuhr. And he said, we, I think first thing we have to remember is many of the greatest evils that have happened in the history of the world are from people who thought they were going all in, in the eradication of evil. and <laughs> often created more evil in the process. And I, that was another highlight for me about, like, thinking of, of, gosh, this is the guy I want to see in the Oval Office. Yeah, I, think I think this guy, uh, I mean, it's, it takes a strange combination, right, of ego because right. you got to believe the gods have lined up and wanted you to be, and yet hopefully we can have we have somebody that can also with that ego be checked by a sense of humility and complexity, which is what we have now. The press, Clearly. Yeah. Now. I mean, clearly yeah. I mean, he's really all the best. So, so much of our better
1: angels are reflected <laughs> in I, his temperament. He has the best angels. He's got the
0: best <laughs> angels. I mean, they're, they're like the Victoria's Secret angels. I mean, they're, they're beautiful. Uh You know, and I hope my friend Roger Ailes has the Victoria's Secret angels in the sky. Uh, he's the
1: sky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> i love that not our better angels
0: he has he has the best angels. He he's the best angels <laughs> All right, you know, the, the best part i mean like it was when he said you know he's talking about what happened with the Syria launch the syria missile launch i was sitting with president g and we were eating of the most big beautiful piece of chocolate cake, and President Xi was enjoying it. <laughs> I could tell, and I'm like, "Well, the funny thing is, Mar a Lago just got dinged with his health care right. yeah. It's so great. Um, it's just great. I mean, it's just. Um, I was talking with uh, David French yeah. last week. I think A yeah, uh, yeah, great yeah. guy, and I asked him, you know, I don't know if you're struck by this, but I mean, we've clearly got the most secular president. We've had in my lifetime. I mean, th- this man is so thoroughly secular. And I'm not making a. a right. That's a, a, that, that value is a judgment. descriptive term. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it just you know, yeah. And also, I feel like re- as far as religious imagination and rhetoric, we've got a fairly secular Republican leadership. I mean, I don't really hear Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or, you know, like, or uh, most of the congressional leadership able to uh, talk in ways that that say president obama could with integrity and even you know george w bush although maybe i didn't always love the tones of it but it was there you can right. see but like i mean these are these are it seems like it's weird that the religious party which more people vote you know if you go that's one of the biggest indicators right i mean in 1950 that was not an indicator whether or not you're going to vote for eisenhower now it is it's amazing that they can be so uh inelegant <laughs> with
1: religious rhetoric or, and imagination, right? I mean, why is that? Oh man! Well, this, right. This is a whole. This is a whole episode. It, you know, it's for for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, um, I, I, I'm not sure of the latest numbers, but Pew has consistently shown. You know, people view the Democratic Party as being um, uh, less friendly to religion than the Republican Party, and there are some. Um, some rational reasons for that and some irrational or unfactual sort of bases for those, those kinds of feelings, but they exist. Um, the democratic party, um, is just statistically, um, more secular. And so I think that, um, uh, uh, there's a higher percentage of religiously unaffiliated or, um, self self-identifying atheists in the democratic party than in the Republican party. Um, but But then you go into you know all of the ways in which uh-huh. um, all of the ways in which uh, sort of uh, evangelicals and Catholics to a certain extent have allowed things like um, racism and misogyny to have have a have a uh, a safe haven in in their theology. Um, you look at the ways in which,
0: and for, and for our listeners, right? Let's just make sure for our listeners not familiar with you your work. You're an evangelical. You even believe you believe the Bible's inspired. You even think the leather's genuine.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're like genuine you're like leather. a real
0: evangelical, yeah, right? And a yeah, Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah. So, so that's so I I um, I, I, I say this as, as a member of the family, so to speak. I'm also Italian, so I'm a member of that family too. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, and, and then. Uh, you, you you know uh, there is a sense in which uh, we live in the most highly polarized uh, uh, from a political party perspective time uh, ever. Um, uh, so uh, uh, yeah, no one could win forty nine states right now. No. Like even Bush Bush won how many? Like forty.
0: I mean, like those kind of electoral in majorities. World, uh, they're just these seem impossible now
1: without a major political realignment or a. Uh, 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 a changing of what we expect from our politics, um, yes, we are beyond that time, um, and you know, in the religious space, there there are serious questions to be asked, um, and really across the board, right? But but since you asked about the the sort of religious vote, there, there are serious questions to be asked about how much um, party identity is shaping our. Uh, values and positions as opposed to our positions and values shaping our political party. And so uh, we, we see this all the time. George W. Bush supports uh, immigration reform, and Republican support for immigration reform is like twenty points higher than it is when Barack Obama supports it. And you could you could you could flip it. It works. Uh, it, you know, yeah. it, wor- it works the same way on the other on the other side. Like,
0: right? like, like Republicans didn't like Putin, and now p- Trump likes Putin. And now all of a sudden, right. p- Putin's approval. Yeah, exactly, just, and so, yeah. um, uh,
1: and so it works on, on both sides. But it's it's a deep concern for me because how how do you have? Um, it it almost flips the representative nature of our government. If p- if people are responding to sort of uh, political incentives. As a sort in, in uh, as opposed to the sort of political system responding to the incentives of of people's desires then then what does what does it mean to live in a representative democracy in other words if, if politicians can so, and, and not not just politicians but advocacy groups and uh, if they could so significantly shape voters' ideas um th- then what does it what does it mean to have uh, a, a representative body uh, which I, I don't mean to get too theoretical here but um, uh, public religion research institute did a survey in 2015 asking uh, to, uh, asking of evangelical voters and others but uh, asking evangelical voters um, is the moral or ethical character of uh, of your candidate important to your vote Um, And in 2015, uh, white evangelicals, uh, 70% of them said, or or about two-thirds said, yes, it's it's very important. In 2016, the same question was asked. The numbers virtually flipped. Only a third of uh, white evangelicals said the moral character of their candidate. Uh, was important to them. Well, well, what changed in that time? Did we receive? New, he, has, he has the best character. He did has we the receive his teachings? You know, was what did, did we get Dead Sea Scrolls part two and, and, you know, just <laughs> theology shit? No, nothing changed. What changed is the Republican Party had a nominee who was, uh, uh, blatantly not sort of cut from the same moral cloth as, uh, as he, as evangelical. The theology would support. Um, and so they just threw character out, out the window. And, and, and it's, it's, um, it's, it, it's, if that's the way our politics is going to be shaped, then we need to, we, we need to ask more significant questions about. Again, what what it means to have a representative democracy and what that what that will look like in the twenty first century.
0: And Billy Bush is banned from public life, and Trump gets got to be president. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, hey, that guy should at least get a radio show in Manitoba. I'm you not know. saying a big Billy Bush fan, but this guy laughed at lewd at something yeah. lewd that was awful. And and Billy Bush. It's like Renee Girard in scapegoating. He had to go expiate the sin. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> you,
1: you know, I, I'm sure all of your listeners will agree. You know, Billy Bush has been handed a very rough, uh, rough uh, hand in his life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just very. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's, he's had a, been dealt a rough hand. But uh, but no, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Right. So um, Trump's election has there's no playbook for dealing with this so for instance you know my my defense of the long presidential campaign season which is unlike anything else around the world right like in uk they announced that they were going to have an election and the election will be over in, in a matter of months we have presidential yeah. campaign seasons that last two plus years and my my defense no, the president in the west wing right they say
0: the presidency is 18 months And right. actually like basically you you got your first, you, you you got 18 months, then midterms come. Everybody else is getting reelected yeah. and they don't have time to deal with you. And then you're running again.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, my, my defense of that had always been, well, the long presidential campaign season, it really weeds out the pretenders that, that it really is a gauntlet. And, and uh, the people who emerge from that are people generally of, um, of a presidential temperament. And, and I think you know, for all of their failings, even Bush, even Clinton, uh, uh, they, uh, they had the, the sort of, um, they had presidential temperament in, 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 the, in the sense that they were able to make decisions that they knew how to run government, uh, uh, that they, uh, you could say that the presidential campaign season whittled out some of the, uh, some of the worst candidates, right? Like, so Pat Robertson didn't emerge out of the, Eighty-eight primary, even though <laughs> even though he was, you know, at the at the top of the heap. Um, and you even look at two thousand twelve. You know, Herman Cain was you know the number one uh, candidate at a point. Twenty sixteen, you just can't. That defense clearly falls on its face. Donald Trump uh, was able to uh, manipulate uh, and navigate uh, a media environment and a primary system. In a way that we elected someone who was patently unqualified for the job for for really the first time in modern sort of American history, you could make you know you could talk about harding and and a, a couple others, but for the first time in modern political history, we have a president who is who is patently un unqualified of of carrying out the responsibilities of the presidency. The only way he's qualified in is in the sense that he was elected <laughs> you
0: you've written and talked about how. It, it, politics today does some work for for us identity wise, emotional, emotionally, and spiritually that it shouldn't do. And part of the reason voters are able to be so misled is mm. that there. You, you, I've heard you again in writing and ta- in interviews say like it, 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 we're looking to things for, to the political process for things. It, it's not designed. It can't give us. Yeah. But yeah, candidates' jobs are to get votes, so they'll pander to that.
1: Yes that's exactly
0: is this, right is is this uh, this moment in political, american political life more important than any to hear that message
1: <laughs> it, yeah. based on my experience traveling around the country seeing the way in which this election and now you know the first 120 something days of this presidency have unmoored people um yes yes it's 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 a very important message and it's not It's not a, uh, yes, it will improve people's personal health. So, right. I've written about the American psychological association had to, um, actually created a name for, they created and designated sort of election stress disorder as an actual thing. So the 52% of Americans suffered from election stress disorder. Um, (laughs) uh, there were, there were teachers across the country, um, uh, that said that their kids were having, I guess stu, that they had students who were having nightmares, um, uh, uh, during the election campaign season. And, and this is, in some cases, it's related to substantive concrete sort of policy concern. In my experience, um, I had people crying at my events and they weren't crying because they were worried about losing care or they were worried about, um, people being deported, which are all legitimate concerns. But my point is, is that they weren't crying about any of those kinds of things. They were crying um, for sort of uh, ways, for reasons they couldn't quite articulate. There was a spiritual harm that our politics is doing in people's lives. Um, and, and I argue in Reclaiming Hope that a big reason for that is, um that people are going to politics, they have spiritual needs met that aren't meant to be, um, uh, that can't be met by politics. Um, it, it, so it's a, it's a significant problem. What, what I've been thinking about um, since I published the book is uh, kind of the uh, what now question, which is, you know, are there sort of practices that we can um, implement in our lives that will build up stronger personal and even civic character to, to sort of, um, to sort of withstand these pressures because yes, we can hope for statesmen to emerge that, um, uh, will unilaterally sort of withdraw, um, from, from using every emotional lever of manipulation available to them. But like you said, and like I've written, um, politicians are driven by uh by election and if if there's an emotional lever that's available to them they're most likely to use it and so the the job of citizens and the job of of those listening is to um make sure that you're engaging in politics um uh in a way that's healthy and and in a way that expects from politics what it can deliver on
0: hmm. yeah is there is there a place maybe in public life, for the old Christian Reformation doctrine, it's 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. Yes. Justification by faith. Because if you're not just, if you're justified by faith, then you're not justified by your ideas or ideals or your, you know, your demographic right. identity. You know, I mean, I wonder if that's something that needs to be preached and taught and proclaimed more.
1: Yes, it, it, there is. Um, yes, that is that is very important. So, um, so C.S. Lewis wrote in this essay. Um When he was contemplating uh a uh, a third party a christian third party in in the u k um, and he said you know one of the major temptations when you combine uh, religion and politics is to claim that God hath said when God on an issue where God has not spoken, so for instance you know in the Amer- in the American context, there is no biblical Prescription for the exact percentage at which capital gains should be taxed, you know, Um, and yet all the time in our politics, you have uh, people treating as if there is a religious mandate on that question, uh, saying, you know, putting out voter guides that that do have uh, uh, sort of official statements on that question. And what that does is it puts a moral burden on individual voters and on our politics that is just unhealthy. And so. so what I advocate in, in the book in, in Reclaiming Hope is for, for people to carry their faith with them into, uh, into the public square, into politics, uh, but, but uh, be, be sure not to ever turn sort of policy preferences into religious dogma. The, that uh, to use your terminology, you know, we are not justified by our, our view on the capital gains tax. We are not justified on our, um, on our view of, uh, whether the, uh, whether the action in Syria was appropriate or not. Now those all have religious implications and we should debate those. Um, but, but yes, we, we need to disinvest some of the, some of the, um, sort of, uh, uh emotional affirmation that we're getting from our politics, that the politics is not the best place to go for affirmation and belonging. Uh, and what we have right now is a politics that that is explicitly of belonging, is explicitly of affirmation. Um, and that's, again, deeply unhealthy.
0: There's a, a scene in the West Wing where President Bartlett, um, played by Martin Sheen, is talking with Josh Lyman. And after they've taken a loss on something and he said you know what the difference between me and you is josh uh i want to be the guy and you want to be the guy the guy counts on and that's why i'm kind of willing to risk it all yeah because i want to win cause, and you want to risk it all because you're afraid of disappointing leo yeah are, are you kind of the guy the one do you have the want to be the guy temperament or do you want to be the guy the guy counts on and i mean you're you're gonna you haven't gotten out of politics and yeah. you're obviously are staying in public life so
1: what uh, what's the future hold for you? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, you know, right now, just because of um, for sort of practical, sort of political considerations, um, it, it is um, it, it is hard to see a pathway um, uh, to um, for 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 people like me to, to build a coalition big enough to to uh, to sort of be be the guy um you know my i care about a couple things i care about um helping the church in particular navigate um what is what is and what is going to be a very challenging um uh new kind of environment in this country um that is also going to be rich of opportunities and so um being able to spot those and and um, and take advantage of those, and then I, you know I care about I care about, um, I care about uh, helping to build a country where um, where we can live together um, even with our differences, and so I think faith plays a major role in that. But but part of that is is um, having people in, of faith in this country that do not resort to. Um, coercion, or um, uh, do, do not uh, sort of um, uh, do not sort of confuse um, persuasion and uh, and and coercion. That that, that that do not view their their faith as something that must be um, protected from their neighbors, but something that can be can be shared and live alongside their neighbors of of different faiths or no faith at all. And so those those questions of social cohesion, I think, are becoming more and more important.
0: Michael, thanks for spending some time talking with me. I think the things you care about are incredibly important. And may your tribe increase. And your book is Reclaiming Hope.
1: Yeah. And you have a new podcast. I do. So uh, Justin Gibney, who's an amazing uh, attorney, uh, 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 political activist, co-founder of the ANN Campaign, which is a great organization. Uh, we started the Church Politics Podcast. It's ho- hosted by 4th District. Uh, it just came out a couple weeks ago, and so people can check that out. And we're, um, we're, we're hoping to, uh, again, help people navigate what is a very... Um, uh, tricky and and quickly evolving sort of political environment.
0: Well, I couldn't think of a better guy to, to help people than you. And thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hey, I appreciate it. It was great talking.
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something. And say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Michael's book, Reclaiming Hope, and check out his new podcast, Church Politics. He's a great guy. You won't be disappointed. And until next time, fare thee well.